Hey everyone, this is Rebecca. Chelsea and I have had so much fun making this podcast. We're really grateful to everyone who's listening and engaging in these critical conversations. And we hope you've gotten as much out of this as we have. So we're running a contest for the holidays. For everyone who subscribes and reviews us on iTunes, we'll enter you into a drawing. Two winners will be drawn on Christmas Eve to receive either a 30-minute tarot reading with Rebecca or a 30-minute intuitive guidance with Chelsea. For more details, go to listentotherising.com. We want to know, how can spirituality transform our social movements? And how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. I'm Rebecca Burnt. And I'm Chelsea McMillan. And we're spiritual directors exploring the intersection of spirituality and social justice. So today we're going to talk a little bit more about anti-racist work. Um, In some ways, this is kind of a continuation and deepening of our episode last week with Yardina Peacock. We're going to be talking to two of our friends who are doing um, a lot of really deep work around dismantling white supremacy within themselves. And we wanted to do this in part just to continue the conversation around this issue because I think it's so important. And for those of us who are white, it's really one of the primary tasks Mm -hmm. we have right now, I think, Mm -hmm. in the world. And also to hopefully give people some more concrete examples of how folks are doing this in their own lives Mm -hmm. um, and directions for, for, you know, paths that maybe you can take to begin to do this um, anti-racist work and dismantling these structures of whiteness that have shaped all of us. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, yeah, like we'll get a lot out of talking with um, Abraham Latiner and, and Margaret Johnson, who are guests today. And I want to say that it it also isn't going to be wrapped up in this episode. <laughs> you yeah. know, like yeah. this is sort of an ongoing uh, conversation and an ongoing, I mean, just like we talked about with Yardana Peacock, it's an ongoing practice. We just have mm-hmm. to keep on showing up to this work. And so... I think that there's sort of, um, I know something that I've been feeling and, and I kind of hear from other people is like, okay, but like, when is this going to end? <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And I know this is like, you know, I'm sure that if, if some of Probably my not friends of color, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. And this is like, it's just messy work and it's not easy and um, and it's not going to be wrapped up in one podcast episode or like, yeah, and not in our lifetimes. And we kind of have to keep on showing up to it and um, and sort of let it be messy a little mm-hmm. bit. You know, I think that there's sort of a sense of like, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a sense of like dissatisfaction or... Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like sitting in the unknown. Like, we want to know that there's a clean answer to this. And I think something that we talk about with both Abraham and Margaret is sort of this this confronting of wanting to be the good white person Mm -hmm. and and that we really have to face that. And once we face that and sort of sit in the messiness of it, like, that's sort of our first step to, um, to dismantling some of these. 
yeah. things. And I think it really gets at that that myth of goodness that is like so important to confront for any kind of shadow work that mm-hmm. we do, um, of of just recognizing that none of us is ever really good, and that's like okay, and mm-hmm. it's like we have to kind of be okay with that, so that we can actually paradoxically begin to become better people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, And on that, I think that, you know, with shadow work, it's not just about facing the ways in which you are racist. It's like, you know, because shadow shadow work is like, is bringing light to the places that are unseen in mm-hmm. yourself. And that's why this, this work takes so much time and, and energy, because it's like, we are carrying in our bodies and in our DNA, like hundreds, if not thousands of years of of systems of oppression and systems that separate us and make us think that, you know, systems of domination, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and when it, it's, it's sort of like infiltrated every molecule of your being, you know, it's like, we have to face the way that we are in the world, the way that we view the world, the way that we are, we're showing up in the world. And, and so many of these things are connected that once we start um, recognizing our, like implicit bias toward people of color, we also have to start facing our ideas about like, you know, like the meritocracy in which we live. And mm-hmm. like, you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And that makes us face the the capitalism that we're living in. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah, sort of yeah. like once all, you pull the thread. It's all interconnected. Yeah. And that's, that's the shadow work is like finding these things that we're not even conscious of. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, rather than um, continue to talk yeah. about this, why don't we get into our episode? Because Margaret and Abraham have a lot to share with us. Here is our interview with them. Margaret Johnson is an activist, a healer, and a spiritual seeker. She cut her teeth working for social change in the Catholic worker movement and is inspired by the work of the Aini Institute and the Momentum Organizing Community in developing frameworks for strategic organizing while upholding relational culture. Margaret is a licensed massage therapist and a kundalini yoga teacher and has participated in several activist movements and organizing communities. And Abraham Latiner works to create spaces for people with dominant power to experience the freedom of surrender. He has found that when such people experience the power with that comes with aligning with movements led by people at the margins of society, they can learn how to support those movements in sustained, sustainable, and sustaining ways. That, he believes, would be a true freedom. He is part of the core team of Freedom Beyond, a decentralized network of small circles of people seeking freedom from white supremacy. Thanks so much to both uh, Margaret and Abraham for being with us today. Um, We're really excited to have this conversation. And um, to begin, I would really, um, could we start with you, Margaret? How did you, what's your story and how did you come to activism and anti-racist work? Yeah, thank you. Um, So I have grown up um, in a a Catholic background, um, sort of raised in a liberal Jesuit uh, Catholic um, parish and community. It was a really liberal community, but not a really radical um, community. So, you know, I, I grew up kind of considering myself like a good white person. Um, and, you know, that, that like, think, I think the right things, um, and I try to do the best I can. 
And uh, it's been, you know, a long journey of spiritual growth and self-discovery. Um, I began uh, my sort of journey um, in the social change world uh, through the Catholic Worker. And it's a predominantly white movement. And there's, you know, just like in any other community of um, people in the world today, it's uh, imperfect. Um, And there was, you know, an ongoing sort of journey and and discovery of um, the problematic nature of, you know, a predominantly white community um, doing work for social change in ways that, you know, perpetuate patterns of oppression and domination. And, you know, a lot of the episodes that you all have done have talked about sort of like the burnout culture in in activist scenes and communities and circles. And um, I experienced that. um, So both of those sort of realizations and um, experiences um, sort of propelled me into um, the realm of, you know, healing and, yeah, spiritual growth and sort of doing that internal work. Um, So I have spent a long time learning uh, various healing modalities. I'm a licensed massage therapist, so I, I am very familiar with how energy moves through the body. And there's just been a a path of sort of getting in touch with my intuition and following my intuition. And one place that that led me was in um, starting to practice um, a shadow integration series of practices. And, you know, I, I also have been following Charles Eisenstein a lot. And I know that he was one of the inspirations for you all in starting this podcast you know, his book is called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. So basically where I am right now in my life, you know, after doing a lot of personal work in the context of, you know, trying to um, get better at being a good white person. <laughs> um, so, you know, taking the, the realizations about myself and, and the problematic nature of the ways that, um, you know, I participated in social change work growing up and, in, you know, throughout my young adulthood is sort of taking that concept of the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible and, you know, realizing that as much as I want that, um, as much as I just like yearn for building that world, Um, I I have to recognize and I have to accept that there's a part of me that has manifested the world that we're living in Um, and that just the there's a part of me that has participated in the creation of or the in the destruction of the world and it's been through this process of accepting this part of myself that I've felt a lot of liberation um, in that acceptance um, because this gives me the energy to um, fully accept this work, um, the work of dismantling whiteness, of eradicating racism, um, of like, you know, atoning um, for the the terrible um, actions that the people who 
who I share a cultural identity with have done. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of my story um, and kind of what, what I'm most interested in lately. That's so great. Thanks, Margaret. I'm, uh, I know we'll definitely be touching upon a lot of what you've brought up. And, um, and before we dive into all of that, um, maybe we can hear from Abraham. And, and how, what's your story, Abraham? How did you come to this work? Hi, everybody, and thank you for inviting me to be on the show and Margaret for introducing me. So glad to be here. Um, so uh, a lot of what Margaret said in particular about accepting oneself and what we're born into is really resonant with me. Um, I come from a family of Democrats, so very much used to talk of social justice and injustice, but um, very much in the capital D democratic framework. But I always had an eye for justice and injustice, and my parents and my family taught me that. And um, I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut and there learned, started to get educated about privilege, um, especially around being a white person and around being a man. Uh, there wasn't as much stuff around class, at least overtly. And so, but I, I, I definitely left college having an awareness of, oh, I've got a lot of privilege. And my framework was, the best one I could come up with was, I should give back. You know, I recognize I've been given all these things that I haven't earned, so I'm going to give back. And so what that looked like at, at that point in my life was thinking about, okay, so who, is, who most needs support? And in my, in my mind and the way I understood the world in that point, because I wanted to be going to teaching, it would be low-income kids of color. That was where my mind went for like, oh, these are the kids who most need support and most need good teachers. And I'm, all of this uh, I'm saying with kind of quotes around it because these are all things that I now am no longer aligned with that approach, but that's what I had back then. So um, I taught for 10 years in Boston in different capacities in nonprofits and in, in the public schools. I had a roller coaster ride. Um, I'd had a lot of success, I think, and also a lot of frustrations. And about six years into my teaching career, I happened to read an article in the New York Times about an organization called Resource Generation. And a person uh, who is now my friend named Naomi was quoted and her picture was there and she was talking about trust funds and her, her, the trust funds in her name and how that interacts with her progressive values, realizing that the accumulation of wealth is um, inherently unjust. And so I was shocked because I didn't know anybody could, was allowed to talk about that stuff. And in fact, I had my own story around coming from a family that had multi-generational wealth and it kind of just blew open my whole world, although I was so dedicated to teaching that I didn't give it space, but there was like major tectonic shifts happening from that. And I think it started me really in earnest down the path to burnout, which I would have reached anyway, because I was a perfectionist uh, teacher in a world that is absolutely not 
ready to accommodate perfectionism. Um, but discovering this narrative that resource generation has, which is they organize um, progressive young people towards the, towards the redistribution of land, wealth, and power. So very radical organization. And the story that it was offering me, I realize now, was that there was work to do towards justice that I was specially positioned to do as a person coming from a family with access to wealth. Um, and it was, I didn't have to be anyone other than myself. I didn't have to pretend I was something I was not. I didn't have to reach across some vast cultural divide. It's like right there, my family and the people that I'm connected to are people that like could be organized and could be organized towards real radical justice work. And so simultaneously, that forced me to ask myself, well, so what am I doing here trying to change the world by teaching poor kids of color? Is that really where I'm specially positioned to make a difference? So those things really, that, I think that led me faster towards burnout. After 10 years of teaching, I left, and the first act, kind of radical act I guess I did, was not jumping into a new job immediately. My, before resource generation, I would have said, Oh, most you know, everybody has to get a new job as soon as they leave their job. So you have to also, even though I really don't. And so the first act that I did was, I'm not going to get another job. I'm going to take a breather because something, something in me has just died. My dream of being a teacher died. And so I, through support and people who, who were there for me, I came to see there was work I could do towards processing what I'd gone through that could be helpful towards moving on. So I first thing I did was become a resource generation organizer in my chapter locally here in Boston, um, organizing other young people with access to wealth. And then through that work, I met an incredible array of people involved in movement work. And in 2014, when the movement for black lives really exploded onto the public scene uh, in an unignorable way, I had the opportunity to organize white people. So I'd been looking mostly through a class lens, but then with the Movement for Black Lives, I developed also that opportunity to organize white people around anti-racism. And then Trump came along and toxic masculinity was strutting about on stage. And so now today, uh, my work is really grief work that I'm doing in, in real time because it's my own work as well. I'm, no, I'm like not super far down the path of fully processing the, what I think of as the grief of being in a position of being an oppressor and having a sense of justice and injustice. And I'm a white man with access to money. So I'm, I've got it all when it comes to oppressor identities. And so today, yeah, it's, it's how, do, how do we create spaces for people in the position of oppressor to, to pursue and process grief intentionally as a way to step into movement work in a way that I think leads to freedom. So that looks like two things primarily, and I learned this from the Momentum organizing community that I'm a part of, supporting work. Um, so as a person with access to material resources and networks, how do I use that to support the work of organizing led by people at the margins? So the Movement for Black Lives, um, North Dakota in Standing Rock and um, Native land defense like that, um, Movimiento Cosecha, Organizing for Immigrant Justice, 
Um, all those are like support work that I see as like an, an amazing opportunity for people like me to get to be part of movements. And in order to do that support work, I work to drive movement in my own community of white people, men and wealthy people in particular, to do grief work that helps us to arrive at that support work for people at the margins, but in a way that's grounded and stable and, like I said sus in my bio, sustaining, sustained, and sustainable so that we're in it for the long haul. Mm. One thing I'm kind of struck by both of you, um, and this harks back to something Margaret said. She, you, t you said something, Margaret, about trying to be a good white person or wanting to be a good white person. And I kind of heard that in your story too, Abraham, like, um, you know, you had this idea of if I'm going to go and be a good white person and use my privilege for something good, I'm going to go and I'm, I'm going to teach, you know, poor children of color. And, um, and there, there was something you said there, like about like, because they need good teachers. And there's, there's like that whole idea that we have, that, like unconsciously that like, a good teacher is like a well-educated um, exactly. white person that exactly. comes from privilege, right? Exactly. Um, and I'm just wondering, like what I'm hearing there is the way that that notion sometimes of being a good white person is itself something that gets in the way. Um, this is a podcast that's about spirituality, um, really at its core and how it intersects with activism. And one of the core concepts, and I think almost all spiritual um, traditions and systems is the idea of really surrendering the ego um, to something that's greater than us, that that's bigger than us. And, and that that's often very painful and difficult work. And I'm just curious about the ways in which uh, there's this white ego that like gets constructed around the idea of being a good white person, right? Like a good, like, like I, you know, I vote for the right people or I give money to the right charities or whatever. Um, and then it's really painful for us to let go of when we have to face the truth that in, we are complicit, that we do have this shadow side of ourselves that is complicit or that has contributed to white supremacist paradigms. And I'm wondering if either of you can speak to that. Um, I, can, I can say that um, the, the shadow work that I have been engaged in, I would almost say it's like an evaluation or it's like a taking stock. Um, or another way of putting it would be like, you know, non-judgmental, but it's judgment. It's saying like, yes, this is a part of me. Um, and like, what if I could just accept everything about who I am? Mm -hmm. um, what if I didn't have to deny that I have this part of me and that it was okay that this background, um, this, you know, legacy, um, this lineage, yeah, what if I could fully accept it in a way that, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because Abraham is, is talking about grief work, um, and I think that our work is very similar, but in, there's like a paradox of kind of defining it really differently because mm -hmm. um, the sort of flip side of that grief is just saying like, okay, this is, this is a part of me and just allowing myself to be a whole person. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's 
yes, allowing myself to be a whole person where I can accept everything about me, even the things that I am ashamed of. And I think what I would add to that is, like, even the phrase good white person, I think, Mm -hmm. contains the DNA of the problem Mm -hmm. because it's an individual, as though it's possible for a single white person to be good mm-hmm. um, instead of the collective changing and the collective being good. So it's like, to me, when I am trying to understand whiteness or masculinity or any identity that is rooted in domination, the, the, the common thread I find is this myth of individualism, that it's possible for us to dominate without also dominating parts of ourselves. So to me, it's, it's like if I can drop the idea of being a good white person because that it, it is based on a lie that I can exist as just an individual and not part of something much larger than myself, that's just massive amounts of energy that are now available that are not being used to defend myself. It's like, mm-hmm. nope, I am white. White is created to oppress and to hoard resources. So there's no way I can be quote unquote good in my whiteness. Fantastic, I don't, have to, I don't have to waste time and energy on that anymore. I'm gonna focus on now what? And now I don't have the same level of fear that people of color are gonna find out that I have racism inside me too, it's like, yeah, it's not, it's, and it seems like it's not a surprise. Most of the people <laughs> of color who I'm connected with, when they find out that I too have racism inside me, it's not like, oh, I would have never thought. It's like, oh, he can admit it. Okay. Then there, there's a level of trust, paradoxical trust building that I've found can happen when I just can accept it and not fight it. And that, that can't happen if I'm still defending, defending, defending my little image of like, I am a good white person, so I, uh, that's all, all I want to add. I think that's a great description of the spiritual transformation process. That's what it's about. It's about letting go of that needing to defend our egos and surrendering to something greater than ourselves, whether we're framing that as God or whether it's the collective community that we're all a part of, you know? Yeah, that's what I was so struck by in listening to your stories, and I, I totally resonated with this, which is, is uh, sort of realizing that it wasn't just about me as a white person, but waking up to the collective paradigm in which we live, and that once we start questioning that, we start questioning everything, you know, like, and finding out that we're like living in these constructs and, and that we're just holding it up. So I'm like wondering a couple things, and one is sort of like, Um, Because I see a lot of people who just kind of go, okay, I can wake up to the racism within myself. And then they just continue to like, do self work, without really sort of like a reaching out into the collective work. Like, so there's sort of this twofold process that needs to happen, I think, which is that internal work and external work, like actually creating the world that our hearts know is possible, you know, to use that phrase. Um, And I wonder if you two can like, sort of talk about that, like sort of, I don't know, just like what that relationship is between sort of like the inner and the outer and like actually what it takes to, to realize that world. Like what, what are concrete, you know, what's concrete work that we can be doing? Um, well, one thing I can sort of offer that um, it might not be a practical thing, but 
Um, just a comment on what you just mentioned about it kind of um, going hyper-personal. Um, and again, like the way Abraham mentioned, you know, this is like the, the myth of individualism um, is that, you know, you've, you've had some episodes where uh, folks have talked about, you know, ancestral work, um, you know, healing uh, ancestral wounds um, through both like, yeah, this, this paradoxical identification as both oppressor and victim. And the, the folks that you've had on have uh, mentioned, you know, much more recent past ancestors, like grandfathers and, you know, the lineage in their families, like blood lines. And I'm interested in that work, but um, something that is, is also really calling to me is um, more like cultural ancestry. Um, mm -hmm. And that's like, you know, going much, much, much further in the past you know, basically like almost prehistoric, like primordial, um, sort of the, the like beginning seeds of these wounds of when human society transformed from a partnership model um, to a dominator model. And ultimately, I think it is really the creation of, you know, I think whiteness is is definitely a, a more recent historical phenomenon, but um, just the reality of oppression, I think, came about when people lost their indigenous identity, um, you know, at the, the beginning of sort of the, the projects of empire and colonization, um, and, and people became disconnected from each other and from land. And so that's the, that's the work that I'm most interested in tapping into. Like, um, what, what part of me actually has that inside of me, has that oppressor, you know, mentality and identity. Um, it, it's also totally important for me to examine my personal racism and my, you know, personal family stuff. Um, and what I, need to take responsibility for in my own life. Like that's absolutely important, but I think that's that's at least for me, I don't know how practical it is, but it's like a it's a thought, that's a concept um, that helps it get out of the the personal, you know, unique um, my my small individual life um, and tap into this more um, common experience of white people in general and I don't have um, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm living my life right now. I'm not, um, doing super explicit work, um, organizing white people, but, um, you know, as this work is unfolding in me, um, I'm imagining that sharing my story in this way is going to resonate with white people and that this is a way of kind of, um, tapping into that sort of common experience, Mm. what what is whiteness you know like where did this thing come about like when did these like racial constructs come up you know was it a slow process was it like <laughs> something that just happened one time you know what I mean like does anybody have an idea of that history yeah the, I mean this is a huge topic and the way the way I learned it was through the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond and also the Racial Equity Institute does amazing workshops on this. I mean, I would say you could spend hours 
just delving into this, but in terms of the base, the, the broad strokes invented by the aristocratic class in the colonies, in the quote-unquote new world, in the 17th century as a way to ensure that the indentured servants didn't band together to revolt because there were European indentured servants, there were African indentured servants, and, and they were all getting treated terribly, living in horrible conditions. So it was, it was a strategy by using scientific uh, appearing research to propose that there were different types of humans and, they, uh, and that these categories were actually based in science and and then they put into place laws uh, that helped make it very, very attractive for European indentured servants to betray the African indentured servants who were their natural counterpart and comrades in being oppressed by the, by the planter class. That's how I'd, I'd, I'd abbreviate it. I don't know if other people have other insight to offer, but that, I mean, you could talk, there's a ton of history there. And, and can I ask you just real quick, because my understanding of the history is that were the African people indentured servants at that point or were they enslaved? Because there, there's a difference between like indentured servants potentially had the the power or the ability to at some point be able to gain their freedom, whereas like an enslaved person didn't necessarily. So I'm stepping out a bit past my the level where I'm able to speak authoritatively <laughs> like this is definitely mm. I've done these trainings and uh, they they go through the history and but if I if I was to sit here and say definitively here's exactly my recollection from those trainings is that actually yes there was a time in which African people who were here um, were not were not enslaved at first that was something that had to be developed and cultivated alongside the myth of race to make it justifiable. But yes, there was absolutely a time when being a, a, a very poor European person and a very poor African person in um, the colonies, there, were, there was a time when it wasn't so stark of a difference. And I'm, you know, Margaret, you talked about like the older cultural history of this, that like whiteness... It's a more recent construct. I was even reading something really interesting from a medieval history scholar uh, where they taught, they look at like these sort of travelogues of these Renaissance and Middle Age, um, like Middle Ages travelers who uh, go and meet people from different countries who are traveling. And when they describe people, they rarely talk about it in terms of race. Like occasionally they might make a reference to like somebody having a darker complexion, but like it doesn't seem to be something that's really in their consciousness. Like they don't talk about like, oh, the brown people or this race or that race. They're more talking in terms of culture. And so it does seem like that this development, this concept of race, and especially as it's tied to skin color, is a more recent development. But I think, as you tried to point out, Margaret, like there is this this older sort of consciousness that that is like the precursor of that. Because, you know, even before we had this concept of whiteness, you know, back in ancient times, there was a concept of being the Roman citizen. The Romans, if you were a Roman citizen, you had privilege, right? And if you were one of the peoples who had been conquered by the Roman Empire, 
you didn't have that privilege unless you managed to somehow become a Roman citizen. So there's been lots of lots of ways of sort of um, constructing this concept of dominance yeah. that go beyond the concept of whiteness. Yeah. Um, you know, I have, you know, meditated on this a lot um, and I've read a little bit about it. Um, some books that go deeper into this, um, you know, it's, it's, again, it's really difficult to access. It's almost like prehistoric. Um, yeah. But The Chalice and the Blade uh, by Rianne Eisler um, definitely goes into this. It's like an anthropological study in, in like a lay person's uh, sort of accessible to the public. Um, and um, it really re-examines a lot of assumptions um, that we've made about human nature. Because, um, I mean, if you think about the, the, the oppressor, the dominator has, has had the ability to, you know, write history and, um, you know, write the textbooks and, and, you know, be the creators of the stories. And so those stories say that humanity has always been like this. We've always been, you know, warlike and we'll, we'll look at these prehistoric times through the lens of this phenomenon that we're, we're just sort of steeped in right now. Um, and we can't see that there might have been another way. And so anyway, that, that book um, sort of shines a light on or just offers this other possibility. Um, so it describes this partnership model of human society. And, um, you know, Charles Eisenstein also goes into this. He, he tells a story um, in The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible about, you know, people in ancient times kind of coming together and making a decision that they would uh, experience separation. And so that's just kind of his own, it's, it's his meditation on, on how we got to where we are. It's, it's not really, you know, based on, on like historical study or anything. Um, but he does do a lot of like study and analysis in his book, Sacred Economics, and I think his his thoughts around like the creation of money and and our, our sort of our, our modern um, concept of money as this like fungible um, like impersonal um, when when relationships became impersonal um, and and more transactional. I think he he goes into sort of how this um, new cultural reality kind of came about. It just struck me how um, that narrative of of the ancient past being full of violence. Um, I don't know if this is conscious or not, but um, but that narrative could totally be tied into racism, <laughs> like mm. like that native peoples, these primitive peoples, um, have lived in violence, and uh, and we are rising out of that. You know, as white people, like we know how to be better in the world. I, w I would also s say, um, so part of, as I said before, I am not an expert. In, it's not like I have PhDs. I don't have degrees in any of this stuff. I haven't read most of the books. So when I'm challenged by someone who 
is right might come to me to say well you people of color were slaughtering each other and this was long before white and you know african people enslaved people and all these things to try and divert attention from what's happening now and that mm-hmm. i have a, a, i have any role in um so i'm careful about saying like well we used to have this or that we, and we may used to have had better relationships uh with the world and the universe and each other and nature, uh, I think that is true. But if I'm in a moment where it's like someone is really being skeptical, I usually would rather go to say, regardless of whether or not this existed in the past, I believe that humans are capable of better than this. And it had, and mm-hmm. so it's really mm-hmm. a separate and distinct thing from saying like, oh, did we have something in the past that we can go back to? It's like, well, even if we didn't, to think that this is the best we can do Mm-hmm. Like this, can't, yeah. this cannot be the best we can do. Well, I think also on that note, what tends to happen is objectification of indigenous peoples. You know, like if we sort of um, glorify and I- idolize them as like, you know, oh, they used to live in the right way, like uh, bar none. Like there's no, you know what I mean? Like we, like there's no no room for us to hold complexities. You know what I mean? Like there was violence and peacefulness in the past and the present and there will be in the future. You know what I mean? Like, and our understanding of the past isn't complete because we're always interpreting like limited data through our own frameworks and understandings. So there's like a both and kind of. Yeah. And I just like, I see a lot of white people who like, especially when it comes to like native traditions and they have like no concept of how there are many native American traditions and that they've like sort of lumped them all into like, well, I follow this thing and this is a native prayer. And, you know, and it, I see that objectification a lot. So I don't know that I want to call that out a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I appreciate that. I'm wondering, like, kind of piggybacking off of what Abraham said, like, because we can never totally know what happened in the past, Mm -hmm. but sometimes by telling these stories or shifting our stories about what the past looked like, it can help us to maybe imagine, like you said, Abraham, like a better, (laughs) a better tomorrow, a better future, even a better now. And I'm wondering if you all can speak to how do we begin to imagine a different way? and imagine a better way. Like, how do we start to do that work of building a different culture? Yeah, this is, I mean, I'll chime in here because what I hear, um, Margaret, when I hear you talking about going beyond just like our immediate lineages, our blood lineages to like the level of cultural ancestry, I loved how you said the beginning seeds of the wound. That I think is really important to explore. And but where I come in, I, I do, I would say I do work that's from a different angle, but absolutely aligned with that, um, which is in terms of how do we, how do we move forward, uh, given what we're caught up in as, as white people, if we're talking about whiteness here, it's to me starting with shared experience. To me, the paradox is if you, if you know there's a room that has two white people in them, in that room, the only thing that anyone can say for sure they have in common is that they were both lied to. But besides that, you can't, there's almost nothing you can predict about what these people's lineages or pasts are. 
Sure, they're likely to both have European heritage, but the borders of what it means to be in Europe are flexible. And actually, it may, they, they aren't necessarily from any sort of related ethnicities. So there's, there's really nothing in common except this shared sense of having been subjected to a lie and then receiving privileges because of being subject to that lie. So, but what I think is the, the, the part where we can actually start to build is when we can create spaces for sitting with the lie that we've been told and the consequences of it. And that to me is why I say grief work, because it's like mm. to realize the only thing I can hold on to is a lie in terms of my understanding of where I come from or as being a white person. If that's all I've got, I have a lie. But that that is a particular and unique pain that can be tapped into to build really deep connections with other people. I mean, to me, which is, it, there's this paradox where it's like, through the lie, we have a truth together. Through the nothingness that we share as white people, we have something. Because only, only we share that experience of having this floor pulled out from under us in this unique way. And I think that that is where, if we can sit and get support for the pain of what the implications of that are, that's where I start to feel a deep connection to white people. <laughs> and it's like, it's funny because my default as a white person growing up is like, of course I gravitate towards white people, but I don't know that I'm doing it. It's just what I think is natural. Um, and then I go through a stage of like, or, and I sometimes regress back into this where it's like, oh, people of color get it. People of color have access to this understanding and cultures that are about resistance to whiteness. I want to go there. And then, then I'm, what I'm experiencing is a return where it's like actually in a, room, uh, in a room of people across race, sometimes actually I'm like, I, I veer towards the white men, not out of some just like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with difference. But because I'm like, oh, you understand something. You may understand something of what I'm going through. And, and I can actually ask you to help me work through it in a way that I do not feel like I can do that for people who are not white men. And so there's, to me, there's this beautiful thing where I actually can feel like white men can be my brothers in a way that I never felt. Mm. Because even though we had so much in common, we had not processed this shared lie and so I felt disconnected from them. Now I have the opportunity to actually feel a sense of kinship with them, which is paradoxical mm. because we have no kinship. Mm. Wow. Uh, you know, I feel like this sort of reaction in me that I'm like a little, I mean, not to that specifically, but to a lot of this conversation, which is like, I don't want people to listen and be like, okay, is this a bunch of white people whining about how hard it is to be white? <laughs> you know, like our pain and our suffering. But or and I think that there's something to be said for um, for something that I think Margaret said earlier, which is like being able to like be in the pain and the messiness, and um, because when we're not in that, we we continue to uphold the the systems of oppression. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? That so it's mm -hmm. like kind of this fine line, but I just like want to sort of point that out because um, I don't know. I get a little sensitive about that, you know. 
I well, I think it. What I, I have this question of then, how do we? Because I think what both Abraham and Margaret are talking about is so so necessary and so mm-hmm. important, and it's something that that white people do need to do with one another. But how do we do it in ways that um, don't isolate us from communities of color and that um, keep us accountable to communities of color? Mm, yeah, I. I have found that the more I can actually learn to feel my own pain, paradox again comes in, the more I, can, I am open to connecting with people across difference. So around whiteness, yeah. the more I can process and actually feel white grief, doesn't mean that I'm always going to share what I'm going through. But if I can do that, I've found that it actually is more likely that people of color who are deep in the work, if when we get the chance to connect, that there will be an opportunity for connection. Not that, I, not that all of them are going to want to connect with me, but at least we can, like there are people who have no interest in connecting with a white person who is processing white grief. That's fine. But I found that there are plenty of people of color who actually do feel, or at least from what I can say based on my relationships that I've been able to form, like, oh, here's a white person I can actually talk to and who's a human and who's really in this in a way that is not just trying to like help people of color, but it's actually Mm -hmm. about seeking their own, uh, their own freedom. And so again, that it, it, it helps, it helps me like get clear on who there are people who want to talk to me and there are people who don't, and I'm okay with it. And that Mm -hmm. goes for white people and people. There are white people who would hear what I'm saying and run the hell away or try and jump on me or whatever. And there are people of color who also would would not want to have anything to do with it. And I'm okay with that because Mm -hmm. I know that there are white people who are like so desperate to also be able to feel. And there are people of color. I mean, people, you know, if you watch like um, Toni Morrison talk about this, if you watch James Baldwin talk about this, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Alicia Garza, like people of color who are deep in the work who are like, white people are in crisis mm-hmm. and they, they need to save themselves. I mean, I'm of course, bring together a bunch of voices and broad brush interpreting them. But that is to me the clear call I hear across time from people of color in different movements in terms of like instructions to white people. It's like, learn to feel, learn to be human so that you can save yourselves. And we're all also, by the way, we're all here under your boot while you're trying to do that. You know, I think um, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think in my own life, one of the things that I've found that keeps me from connecting with people of color, really keeps me from connecting with anybody, is that fear of of being called out or, or not doing something right or having someone respond to me in a way that isn't like total acceptance and approval and like whatever, you know, um, that discomfort. Right. And, and I do think the more that we learn to process our own grief and hold those uncomfortable feelings within ourselves, the less afraid you are of it. Like, at least that's what I found to be true in my own life. And so it becomes much easier to, to reach out or to enter into a, a relationship or interaction with somebody 
and not be so afraid of what happens if I get it wrong or what happens if this person doesn't respond to me the way that I want them to or what happens if they uh, reflect something back to me that I don't want to see in myself because I've I've increased my capacity to tolerate it, right? And there is something, um, it becomes less scary. It becomes, it's a humility that I think is born that says like, yeah, okay, I might, I might go into this and I, someone might point out to some part of my, my, my white supremacy that I haven't taken a look at yet. Um, and I don't have to let myself be totally humiliated by it. I can just say like, oh yeah, like, you know, thank you for showing that to me or let me take a look at that or whatever. Um, because we're not so caught up in this, again, going back to that sort of egoic identity of the good white person, you know? Yeah, I, I wanted to say it reminds me of Yardena Peacock's uh, po- podcast with you, um, where she really talks about um, being imperfect and, um, you know, still messing up a lot. And, you know, just that notion of like, having a practice. Um, and that means you have to, you know, just continue doing it. Um, so the idea of anti-racism work as a practice, um, that just felt really important to, to tie in there. Mm -hmm. Just, I I also want to add, I am very image conscious. So I'm like the things I'm saying, uh, I'm questioning what I'm saying. I'm like, Oh God, how did that sound? Oh no. Mm -hmm thinking about individual people of color in my life or like, oh, if they were listening to this, how would they have responded to what I just I'm very yes. hyper-conscious of that stuff. So it's not that it, there's like some way that I've like uprooted that and now I'm totally, that's like my, that is my spiritual practice is as a very image-conscious person, how do I lean into like step out and say and tell my story and understand that it's going to bother some people and sometimes the way it bothers people is going to be is going to be something that like I really need to reflect on because it's a result mm-hmm. of me being um, careless or mm-hmm. not being aware. And sometimes it's because what I'm saying may be a disruption in the narrative that they have. Yeah. And so I have to be like ready to discern where those things are. But like for me, my part of my personal practice is I say to myself, in the end, I face the mirror. Because mm-hmm. when I when I start to feel my own like image consciousness rising up and like trying to sh- to shut me down, I, s- I say in the end I face the mirror to just remind myself that like I am in this for me, and mm-hmm. I'm I will tell that to anybody, um, and that has a context. Obviously, I think in being in it for me, that's the only way I can be in it for you or anybody else. But that in the end, if I am not of integrity with myself, everything else is going to fall away. And it's going to be the question of was, did I try to live towards an integrity with myself? And I think mm. everything else falls away. Absolutely. Mm. Well, I want to um, start to wrap things up here. I'm wondering, Margaret, if you can maybe tell listeners about where they might be able to connect with you and also are any practical like resources that you would recommend to people um, for getting deeper into this work? Um. I don't have a a super public facing accessibility right now, but just in terms of shadow work um, practices, I I follow um, sort of a community that's been um, doing a a form of shadow work that has 
roots in um, like a, a Jungian um, understanding of um, like accepting all parts of yourself. So just the, the a simple way of explaining um, how I do what I do is, you know, having sort of a, a meditative awareness, um, you know, going into a meditation or um, just sitting quietly and reflecting on, you know, how can I access a part of myself that actually doesn't want what I say I want? Mm-hmm. Um, so if I want this more beautiful world, you know, I can totally fully identify with that. That is my ego. I, I am a good person. <laughs> you know, I do mm-hmm. have this desire and it's beautiful and, you know, and I can also fully accept that there is a part of me that just has a desire to, you know, have this world just be sort of cast off, thrown away, you know, destroyed. There's, there's a part of me that just is, um, is comfortable, um, with the status quo. And, you know, the, the work is about fully, you know, doing that sort of spiritual work of surrendering yourself to that acceptance. And acceptance doesn't mean that that just, then that I go on and live my life just accepting it. Um, but it gives me that liberated energy um, where I'm no longer in denial of that part mm-hmm. of myself. So, um, you know, that denial takes a lot of energy. It's, it's that, that good white person identity, you know, is just, it's, it's really energy consuming to maintain. Um, so when I can, you know, fully integrate and, and say like, yes, I am a good person and I do have these dark parts of myself, um, it opens up a lot of liberated energy and it compels me uh, to put a lot more of myself, um, to take a lot more ownership of this work. Um, hmm. and I think that that's why I, I sort of want to spread this message, um, to others to do this work because I think, um, you know, we'll have a lot more power, um, and we'll, we'll be able to realize that more beautiful world much, much more quickly, um, when we kind of take away this um, block um, that's, that's sort of holding us back. Hmm. Thank you, Margaret. What about you, Abraham? Do you, um, can you tell our listeners about how they can connect with you and your work potentially, or what, what are some resources or ways that they can start to go deeper into this? Yeah. Um, so one book that I really appreciate is Shelley Tochluck, T-O-C-H-L-U-K. She has a book called Living in the Tension, The Quest for a Spiritualized Racial Justice. And one of the things I love about this is each chapter is about a polarity, uh, a binary opposition, that a tension that has to be held in doing racial justice work. So one one chapter is transcendence and race consciousness. So it's like, how do we both transcend the lie of race while maintaining ourselves firmly rooted in the reality of how that lie very concretely shapes our lives differently? Chapter two is self-acceptance and self-improvement. How do I both accept myself as exactly who I am and exactly good enough 
and commit to never settling for, as a white person, never settling for like, okay, well, I've developed my racial consciousness enough. So each chapter is that kind of tension. And I find that like starting, uh, starting to root myself in the, just the necessity of grappling with paradox that that is like one of the biggest things. So however people can get practice grappling with paradox, to me that is a huge piece of it. And this book is a really good one. So Living in the Tension, highly recommend that. In terms of my work, um, so I've been keeping a blog for a while called uh, risksomething.org. The idea is um, what does risk really look like if you're in a position of safety and comfort? Um, and it's exploring that. And so pr particularly from the, my position as a wealthy white man, um, but I've heard different people say it speaks to them whether or not they identify with those, all those identities. Um, I'm also working on a project called Freedom Beyond. I'm part of the core team uh, for that project and it's a decentralized um, network that is, is right now nascent, but we're in development that's small circles of support and peer accountability um, for people seeking freedom from white supremacy. And in particular, we're um, looking at white people and also offering opportunities for people of color who do either identify as benefiting from whiteness, either through the model minority myth or um, being mixed and potentially white passing. So we do have circles that also work with folks like that. Um, but it's really about helping people connect with some very basic ways to connect as humans, F shared food, storytelling, contemplative practice, um, as kind of three of the oldest uh, ways that humans have become social or have, have maintained any sort of social web um, in our history. And so going back to these, as these basics in a way um, and that that is anti-racist work when we're doing it with white people and we're teaching white people, we're teaching ourselves how to re how to connect on a, on a level that's beyond um, the superficial and really centers our struggle as human beings, that we form communities that are much more resilient at, towards movement work in support of people of color-led organizing. So it's kind of a grounding space for us to be able to turn to face the outside world and step into action in a way that is both grounded. Um, I mean, as Brene Brown says, she says, don't, don't shrink, don't puff up, stand your sacred ground. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that Brene Brown may be <laughs> a, a definitely a white person thing to be really excited about, but I think she captures something there <laughs> um, that I think is just so spot on. Because white people, we are like, if we're talking about freedom from white supremacy, we, we have a role that, that other people cannot play. Other people have roles that we cannot play. And if we can't figure out how to support ourselves to show up for the long haul, I'm really worried about, about what is possible. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, we've got to learn to, to get grounded, to be able to discern between what is my white privilege talking and what is my white guilt talking? And how do I come to a center that is neither subjected to either of those? Or, the, or the, that is, because those are always there, but 
where I am, I'm not controlled by those and I'm aware of them and can calibrate myself around those, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. yeah, thank you for that. And let me ask you real quick, is there a website for Freedom Beyond or is that still kind of in development? That is in development. Honest, it, so if you're looking for a way to get support from the people around you, especially as a white person um, in really feeling a part of a deep community and stepping into action work in a sustained way in support of people of color-led organizing. Um, this model is for you and we are in development and we need to fund it so that it can be uh, sustainable. Um, so the, the best way people can support is reaching out to me. If you, have, if you happen to have an interest in funding this work, uh, we could really use it. So, But right now, no website as of yet. Soon to come. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, well, thank you so much for your time today. To wrap up, uh, we usually ask our guests um, and each other what's nourishing and inspiring us right now. Um, Margaret, what's inspiring or nourishing you right now? Um, well, honestly, this is going to sound a little corny, but um, your podcast has been totally super nourishing me. Um, all of your work, actually, Abraham's, yours, yours too. But, you know, to, to give you something different besides just your guys' stuff, um, I um, have been going very, very slowly through a book called Ethno-Autobiography, Stories and Practices for Unlearning Whiteness, Decolonization, and Uncovering Ethnicities. And I think that it's uh, a flip side of the coin of um, what um, Abe was saying about sort of forging culture in the now um, by sharing stories and just being together is this sort of remembering work, um, remembering the ancient mm. um, indigenous identity work. Um, you know, I've been going through it super slowly. So it's lately, I've just been trying to do a lot of singing and dancing and just um, kind of finding some nourishment um, through being with people. Great. Thank you. And what about you, Abraham? What's nourishing or inspiring you right now? Yeah, well, at Margaret's recommendation, I bought a copy of Ethnoautobiography and also recommend it. But I think I'm also, I'm going to go to a different end of the spectrum. I'm always interested in like, uh, in addition to the stuff that goes deep, uh, like Ethnoautobiography, I'm interested in where in pop culture we can actually turn to to mm. also get stories that can connect with people that may not show up to an anti-racism meeting. Um, and I just this morning saw, and this is what I'm going to say, I'm going to go ahead and say it, Coco, the latest mm. Disney movie. Um, it's just out, and I can't believe I'm um, asking people to go see a Disney movie, <laughs> but I am... <laughs> It is, uh, so it's about a Mexican family um, and Dia de los Muertos and the tradition and what it means and the power of, and the importance of remembering ancestors. Mm. And, and, you know, I don't come um, from a Latino country and so I'm not going to claim that I understand. And the, the, the critics may come out and savage it, but the things... That, the reviews I've read from Latino critics seem to be pretty affirmative, um, but I found it stunning and so I was sobbing. And so, but what the reason I'm saying is because 
before the movie, there was a 15-minute short that was a spinoff of Frozen, which I don't know if folks have seen it, but is another yeah. Disney movie that is very white. And it's like mm -hmm. in this kind of mythical kingdom that's, that's pretty clearly Northern European, very white people, a lot of blonde hair and very pale skin. And it's, it's called Olaf's Frozen Adventure. And it's basically these two white women um, who lost their parents and they don't have traditions. And they're sad mm. because the, the, the rest of the kingdom have these traditions, but because they lost their parents, they don't have a sense of tradition. Wow. And so they, <laughs> this character, Olaf, this, this sort of clown character, goes off to find uh, other traditions and knocks on everybody's door and asks, like, what are your traditions these time, this type of year? And he, like, actually collects the artifacts from people's traditions, and they go on this adventure, and they end up, like, the sled falls into a ravine and explodes into flames. And just the symbolism mm. also juxtaposed with this movie about people of color maintaining a connection to the, the traditions and practices they come from, and then seeing white people literally saying, I don't have traditions. And it was right wow. in front, it's in Disney. It's like wow. as close as you can get to the mainstream. Yeah. It is the mainstream, and they are bold front and center talking about i mean you have to be looking for it but it's like what is whiteness and what is the cost at least to me maybe oh. maybe i'm just seeing it through my own lens mm -hmm. but i it was just stunning so wow. I, re I really recommend people go see that again because i think there's value in seeing where in pop culture we can find these stories because then we can have conversations over thanksgiving we can mm -hmm. talk to kids we can start anti-racism conversation with mm -hmm. kids, not by talking about anti-racism necessarily, but saying, like, seeing this movie together and asking what comes up for them. Yeah. And I think white kids could get so much out of it. So that's, that's my plug for a freaking multinational conglomerate. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so live. I was sobbing. I was yeah. sobbing in the theater this morning. Awesome. Thank you so yeah. much. Um, so I'm going to pass this week in the interest of time on recommendations. But what about you, Chelsea? What's nourishing and inspiring you right now? Um, I'd like to mention this Instagram that I've been following um, from a photographer who goes by the handle uh, Shooglet, S-H-O-O-G-L-E-T. And this photographer... Um, you know, her Instagram is full of her photo, full of their photos of um, uh, queer bodies, fat bodies, um, POC bodies. Uh, it's just really cool to look at these beautiful works of art. And it's been really um, inspiring me in just like a really like body positive kind of way. So seeing, um, seeing many kinds of bodies as beautiful. So that's what I'd like to lift up today. Cool. Well, thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Abraham, for being here. Thank you. And yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on as well. Thank you so much. If you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism, check out listentotherising.com. And even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time on The Rising. The Rising.